0: between 1901 and 1903, there were a handful of cases decided by the court that are known as the insular cases. And while these cases have never been overturned, they fall into that category of past Supreme Court decisions that are viewed today by most as flawed because they were based on racist ideas rather than the law. Cases like Korematsu v. United States, These are the bad tattoos of Supreme Court precedent, and the insular cases can be found among them. The court's decision in the insular cases permitted the acquisition and governance of colonial territories, and they established the doctrine of incorporation, which holds that the United States can have two kinds of territories, incorporated or unincorporated. Regarding incorporated territories, the Constitution applies, and there's a good chance that territory might have statehood in their future. But for unincorporated territories, not so much. For them, the United States Constitution need not apply, whether their residents are considered U.S. citizens or not. Last episode, I read the opinion of the court in United States, the Vallejo Madero, a case that asked whether Congress violated the Fifth Amendment by establishing the Supplemental Security Income Program in the 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the Northern Mariana Islands, but not in Puerto Rico an eight-to-one majority held that the Constitution does not require Congress to make SSI benefits available to the residents of Puerto Rico. Today, I'll be reading Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion in that case, in which he noted that although no party asked the court to overrule the insular cases, they were decided based on racial stereotypes that deserve no place in our law. It's a passionately written opinion that reads a lot like a dissent rather than a concurrence. And now, Justice Gorsuch's 2022 concurring opinion in United States v. Vallejo Madero. Justice Gorsuch, Concurring. A century ago in the Insular Cases, This court held that the federal government could rule Puerto Rico and other territories largely without regard to the Constitution. It is past time to acknowledge the gravity of this error and admit what we know to be true. The insular cases have no foundation in the Constitution and rest instead on racial stereotypes. They deserve no place in our law. Part 1. The insular cases were the product of what John Hay called a splendid little war, ostensibly waged to liberate Cuba and avenge the sinking of the Maine. The Spanish-American War proved a boon for the country's burgeoning colonial ambitions. The aging Spanish Empire was in no position to defend its island possessions, and several fell to American forces in quick succession. Under the ensuing peace treaty signed in 1898, the United States took possession of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. But these acquisitions, hard on the heels of the annexation of Hawaii, soon ignited a fierce debate. Some argued that our republican traditions prevented the United States from governing distant possessions as subservient colonies without regard to the Constitution. Others sought to devise new theories by which Congress could permanently rule the country's new acquisitions, as a European power might, unrestrained by domestic law. Leading members of the legal academy provided influential support for those in the second camp. Their work culminated in a series of articles in the Harvard Law Review in 1899. Christopher Langdell argued that the Bill of Rights was so peculiarly English that an immediate and compulsory application of those rights to ancient and thickly settled Spanish colonies would furnish proof of our unfitness to govern dependencies or deal with alien races. James Bradley Thayer contended that there is no lack of power in our nation to govern these islands as colonies, substantially as England might govern them. Abbot Lawrence Lowell submitted that, Apart from treaty or legislation, possessions acquired by conquest or cession do not become a part of the United States, and constitutional limitations do not apply. Such rules, he said, are inapplicable except among a people whose social and political evolution has been consonant with our own. The debate over American colonialism made its first appearance in this court in the form of a tax dispute in Downs v. Bidwell, 1901. Pursuant to the Foraker Act, Congress erected a civil government in Puerto Rico And imposed a tax on goods exported to or imported from the new territory. After incurring a $659.35 tax bill, an importer challenged the Act as inconsistent with the Constitution's Tax Uniformity Clause, which provides that all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. To answer the question whether the act complied with the Constitution, the court resolved that it first had to decide whether the Constitution applied at all in Puerto Rico. Ultimately, a fractured set of opinions emerged. Employing arguments similar to those advanced by Professors Langdell and Thayer, Justice Brown saw things in the starkest terms. Applying the Constitution made sense in contiguous territories inhabited only by people of the same race or by scattered bodies of native Indians. But it would not do for islands inhabited by alien races, differing from us in religion, customs, laws, methods of taxation, and modes of thought. There, Justice Brown contended, the administration of government and justice, according to Anglo-Saxon principles, may for a time be impossible. On his view, the Constitution should reach Puerto Rico only if and when Congress so directed. Justice White offered a different theory that drew on Professor Lowell's thinking. To Justice White... The Constitution's application depended on the situation of the territory and its relations to the United States. In some cases, Congress might express an intention to incorporate a territory into the United States at a future date. In a territory like that, the Constitution must apply fully and immediately. But in other cases, Justice White argued, only fundamental aspects of the Constitution should have force. In his judgment, Puerto Rico fell into this second category and remained foreign to the United States because, unlike territories in the American West, Congress had not done enough to indicate its intention to incorporate the island. Still, it would be a mistake to overstate the gap between the theories advanced by Justice White And Justice Brown. At bottom, both rested on a view about the nation's right to acquire and exploit an unknown island, peopled with an uncivilized race, for commercial and strategic reasons, a right that could not be practically exercised if the result would be to endow full constitutional protections on those absolutely unfit to receive them. In dissent, Chief Justice Fuller expressed astonishment that Congress could keep a territory like a disembodied shade, an intermediate state of ambiguous existence, for an indefinite period. Justice Harlan criticized the court for engrafting upon our Republican institutions, a colonial system such as exists under monarchical governments. And Justice Harlan dismissed Justice White's supposed middle ground, which he could find nowhere in the Constitution's terms. Quote, I am constrained to say that this idea of incorporation has some occult meaning which my mind does not apprehend. Unquote. Later decisions blurred the line between Justice Brown's approach and Justice White's even further. Eventually, a majority embraced Justice White's incorporation theory, including its suggestion that certain constitutional protections are fundamental and therefore apply even in far-flung, unincorporated possessions. At the same time, it became clear that very few constitutional limits on the power of of the federal government could be relied upon in the newly acquired territories, absent a clear congressional statement. Even the right to trial by jury, the court concluded, was not fundamental enough to apply in unincorporated territories, like Puerto Rico. It did not matter to the court that by the time it reached the question, Congress had already granted Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship, in the court's estimation the locality was determinative of the application of the constitution not the status of the people who live in it and on the court's account puerto rico's localities included the compact and ancient communities that had not yet developed the impartial attitude or conscious duty of participation required of citizens by the Anglo-Saxon Jury Trial. Part 2 The flaws in the insular cases are as fundamental as they are shameful. Nothing in the Constitution speaks of incorporated and unincorporated territories. Nothing in it extends to the latter, only certain supposedly fundamental constitutional guarantees. Nothing in it authorizes judges to engage in the sordid business of segregating territories and the people who live in them, on the basis of race, ethnicity, or religion. The insular cases can claim support in academic work of the period, ugly racial stereotypes, and the theories of social Darwinists, but they have no home in our constitution, or its original understanding. In this country, the federal government derives its powers directly from the sovereign people, and is empowered to act only in accordance with the terms of the written constitution the people have approved. Empires and duchies in Europe may have subscribed to the doctrine that people were made for kings, not kings for the people. Monarchical and despotic governments may possess the power to act unrestrained by written constitutions, but our nation's government has no existence except by virtue of the Constitution, and it may not ignore that charter in the territories any more than it may in the states. The insular case's departure from the Constitution's original meaning has never been much of a secret. Even commentators at the time understood that the notion of territorial incorporation was a thoroughly modern invention. The insular cases deviated, too, from this court's prior and long-standing understanding of the Constitution. In 1898, the very same year as the Spanish-American War, a lopsided majority of this court judged it beyond question that the Constitution's jury trial guarantees reached the territories of the United States. Nearly 80 years before that, the court held that the Constitution's Tax Uniformity Clause constrained legislation governing the District of Columbia. In between, this court reached similar conclusions in case after case. With the passage of time, this court has come to admit discomfort with the insular cases, But instead of confronting their errors directly, this court has devised a workaround. Employing the specious logic of the insular cases, the court has proceeded to declare fundamental, and thus applicable even to unincorporated territories, more and more of the Constitution's guarantees. That solution is no solution. It leaves the insular cases on the books. Lower courts continue to feel constrained to apply their terms. And the fictions of the insular cases on which this workaround depends are just that. What provision of the Constitution could any judge rightly declare less than fundamental? On what basis could any judge profess the right to draw distinctions between incorporated and unincorporated territories? Terms nowhere mentioned in the Constitution, and which in the past, have turned on bigotry. There are no good answers to these bad questions. This workaround, too, has proven as ineffectual as it is inappropriate. Perhaps this court can continue to drain the insular cases of some of their poison by declaring provision after provision of the Constitution, fundamental and thus operative in unincorporated territories. But even 100 years on, that pitiable job remains unfinished. Still today, under this court's cases, we are asked to believe that the right to a trial by jury remains insufficiently fundamental to apply to some 3 million U.S. citizens in unincorporated Puerto Rico. At the same time, the full panoply of constitutional rights apparently applies on the Palmyra Atoll an uninhabited patch of land in the Pacific Ocean, because it represents our nation's only remaining incorporated territory. It is an implausible and embarrassing state of affairs. The case before us only defers a long overdue reckoning. Rather than ask the court to overrule the insular cases, both sides in this litigation work from the shared premise that the equal protection guarantee under which Mr. Vallejo Madero brings his claim, is a fundamental feature of the Constitution, and thus applies in unincorporated territories like Puerto Rico. Proceeding on the party's shared premise, the court applies the Constitution, and holds that the conduct challenged here does not offend its terms. All that may obviate the necessity of overruling the insular cases today, but it should not obscure what we know to be true about their errors. And in an appropriate case, I hope the court will soon recognize that the Constitution's application should never turn on a governmental concession or the misguided framework of the insular cases. Asked why he dissented in those cases year after year, Justice Harlan replied that no question can be settled until settled right. We should settle this question right. To be sure, settling this question right would raise difficult new ones. Cases would no longer turn on the fictions of the insular cases, but on the terms of the Constitution itself. Disputes are sure to arise about exactly which of its individual provisions applies in the territories and how. Some of these new questions may prove hard to resolve, but at least they would be the right questions. And at least courts would employ legally justified tools to answer them, including not just the Constitution's text and its original understanding, but the nation's historical practices, or at least those uninfected by the insular cases. Nor, in any event, can the difficulty of the task supply an excuse for neglecting it? Because no party asks us to overrule the insular cases to resolve today's dispute, I join the court's opinion. But the time has come to recognize that the insular cases rest on a rotten foundation, and I hope the day comes soon when the court squarely overrules them. We should follow Justice Harlan and settle this question right. Our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico deserve no less. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at Whatscotusrotus.podbean.com, and click on the contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.